Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, we're going to take a look at the energy supply in Europe after the catastrophic invasion of Ukraine by Russia. For me, it seems somewhat personal because 66 years ago, one of the first things I covered as a very young journalist at an airport in Central Africa was the arrival of refugees from the Hungarian uprising when the Soviet Union uh, uh, came down on the uprising and refugees were everywhere. Now I see refugees again. It's almost as though there had been no interregnum. And once again, the perpetrator is Russia. At that time, we blamed the Soviets. Now we have to look elsewhere for the blame. But to talk about the energy situation and the great hold that Russia believes it has on Europe is gas and oil. It is a huge producer. I have two enormously knowledgeable people, Surya Jayanti, Managing Director of ENI, and Kostas Gerapolis, who's Energy and Russian Affairs Editor at New Europe. Uh, <clears throat> Surya comes to us from Washington and Kostas from Athens. Welcome both. Surya, you were stationed for the State Department in Ukraine for some years, right, as an energy expert? I was, Llewellyn, and thank you for giving me this chance to talk about it. I was the U.S. Energy Chief at Embassy Kyiv from 2018 to 2020, part of the U.S. Foreign Service at the Department of State. And my job there involved liaising and working with the entire Ukrainian energy sector to advance it towards stronger corporate governance, greater integration with Western companies and Western governments, and anti-corruption, as well as overall energy security and resilience. And uh, uh, now you're back in Washington working uh, partly as identified with NA, which is a, a company that specializes actually in decarbonization of energy resources in Ukraine, and also as a consultant to the Department of Commerce. Correct. I am an intermittent expert is the technical term for the energy transition, international my, energy transition. My own expertise is very intermittent. <laughs> that is what we like to say, those <laughs> of us who are occasionally experts. And I, I certainly claim little expertise that is not occasional. But uh, I, do, I do consult for the Department of Commerce. I provide technical assistance to, for the US government to foreign governments to help them implement their own energy transitions. But I'm also one of the founders and the managing director of NA, which is a US-Ukrainian decarbonization company that is working with Ukraine and other developing and sometimes developed countries to help decarbonize their high emission energy assets, for example, coal power plants. Costas. Uh, welcome to the broadcast, and you're in Athens, but you are the energy editor of New Europe, which is a newspaper that spans the entire scope of Europe, does it? Is it just the European Union, the 27 countries there, or is it larger than that? Hi, Lee Welling. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, actually, we cover, um, it's a global, I mean, we focus on the European Union, on Central Asia and Russia and North Africa as well. But, you know, we cover issues uh, worldwide. Um, I have covered um, 
Uh, I'm also the Russian affairs editor uh, for almost 20 years. So I've covered all kinds of aspects of uh, relationships with uh, between Russia and the European Union. Uh, pipeline projects, um, you know, uh, going back um, before the first two crises that, you know, with uh, the Ukraine transit, um, you know, pipelines going back as far back as, you know, um, the Odessa Brody pipeline, for example, from Ukraine, you know, in uh, 2003, I went up to, to, um, to the oil terminal in the Black Sea to see this pipeline that was supposed to arrive to to go all the way to Poland, and then TNKBP announced that you know that they were going to use the um, reverse it because it wasn't going to happen. Which, by the way, uh, BP is pulling out from Russia as well. So I mean, they decapitalizing they, slowly. So I mean, there's a lot of uh, dynamic in the in the region, and you know, it's been changing a lot. Costas, how long do you think Europe can hold on without making some concessions to Russia? because of its terrible need. I'm looking at some numbers here. I'm looking at a chart. And some countries are very heavily dependent on uh, Russian gas, especially. It's still winter. The temperature there um, is not dissimilar from what it is where I am in New England. It's cold. Winter is not over. Uh, how, how is Europe going to survive, especially Germany? And how long can it hold out before concessions will be made to the Russians to secure gas and maybe oil? Um, you know, Europe uh, has been trying to increase its independence. And as you said, uh, rightly so. I mean, it's some countries are still very, very dependent. And we saw that um, also countries that uh, have been investing a lot in pipelines and projects with Russia had been a little bit more hesitant at the beginning with sanctions. Um, but it depends if you know. It, so far, the, you know, if there's going to be a whole disruption in terms of gas supplies, we didn't see that happening even during the Cold War, and uh, even now with the sanctions, I mean, this day there was there is still the ability for you know for Europe to make payments for for the gas to continue. Now, if completely uh, if gas is completely cut off, um, you know, it will be a matter of months. Um, before and it also depends on how quickly the Americans can get LNG to Europe. Um, but uh, we, we're seeing uh, changes that have not happened for a very long time. Like we saw, like uh, the Germany now is planning two LNG plants, uh, which you know was not in the cards before. I was yes, saying liquefied natural gas for the benefit of our audience. So Rio, let me put the same question to you. you uh, much of the gas going to Europe has passed through Ukraine, and Ukraine itself is a gas producer, right? Ukraine is a gas producer, but Ukraine's gas fields are mostly at least 80% already tapped. The exception to that are the offshore fields in the Black Sea. But unfortunately, Russian aggression and Russian patrolling in the Black Sea after the annexation of Crimea has made the prospect of developing those fields much harder for Ukraine. So Ukraine is not energy independent, although it certainly would like to be. Ukraine faces energy shortages almost every year. This year has been especially extreme, although that's of course true for every country in Europe and certainly not just Ukraine. But Ukraine has a little bit less energy resiliency than some of the others. About 50% of Ukraine's electricity is nuclear, so that provides a solid foundation, and that's the base load 
but coal stocks have run short and that's 28% of Ukraine's electricity. And some uh, power plants have had to switch over to natural gas, but of course with natural gas as expensive as it's been, partly because of wind issues in the North Sea, partly because of weather patterns, and partly because Russia engineered a crisis to help increase its leverage now, in retrospect, perhaps as part of its buildup to the invasion of Ukraine, there have been shortages on all fronts and everything is much more expensive. And Ukraine is one of the poorest countries in Europe and in some years, the poorest country in Europe simply doesn't have the ability to keep up. And this is one of the issues that has kept it from yet synchronizing its electricity grid with the European grid, that there are worries among some of the other grid uh, transmission system operators within Europe, part of what's called ENSOE, the organization, uh, the, the sort of club for electricity grid operators. Uh, it is broader than the European Union, but some of those countries have been concerned that Ukraine is not sufficiently technically reliable and that if they link their grids to them, that it could cause disruptions. But one of the things that might come out of maybe even today, uh, but possibly this week is an expedited grid integration for Ukraine with Europe. And that will, help, that will help stabilize Ukraine's electricity markets and electricity supply because Ukraine can then import electricity from Europe. Which assumes the Russians are not controlling it, assumes that Russia has not uh, totally taken over the governance of, of Ukraine. It certainly does. Um, Germany is a mystery to me. Uh, why, when it had some of the best experience with nuclear power after Fukushima, did it suddenly decide never again? German engineering it was a pioneer. When I started writing about nuclear, it was regarded as one of the leading countries in nuclear development. What's the thinking there, Costas? Yeah, it, it, yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the, the you know, following up Germany in the past. I mean, they they have, they were um, very successful in nuclear energy, but the public opinion was not. Um, and it seems like you know, with the the government and the Greens, uh, they decided to go away with nuclear. But um, it, it, it now, especially with the transition, it, you know, it kind of raises a you know a more uh, general question for Europe is. Uh, We've seen prices spike up. Um, I mean, they obviously, you know, phasing out uh, um, coal is a priority, but in terms of other forms of energy, um, they are needed in terms for a transition. Um, so um, I don't know if you know nuclear nuclear energy, you know, was a solution. I don't know if other renewable energy can, you know, step up that quickly. And hydrogen is a promising. Um, fuel, but it will take a long time. So I don't know, you know, if, you know, that in so between Germany period. remains very vulnerable to yeah, supply absolutely. of gas and, and, and oil and uh, basically everything from somewhere else, including electricity off the European grid when the wind is not blowing in the North Sea. Uh, how do you read this, Saria? How do you read the German uh, preparedness to uh, how can we put this, get into bed with the Russian bear? I think it's worth first congratulating Germany on the incredible steps it's taken this week to counter Russia's aggression in Ukraine. It, it takes considerable courage 
to decide to wean yourself off of Russia when over 50% of your natural gas supplies come from Russia and 30% of your oil supplies and 45% of your coal. So the fact that, that Germany has announced that it will wean itself off of Russian fuel supplies and that it will take the hard political decisions of reopening nuclear or at least keeping it online for a little bit longer is both a reflection of how strong the popular support and political pressure currently is on the German government to help Ukraine, but is also a sign of bravery. And it's, and it's definitely worth pointing that out. But Germany got itself into this situation. It could have started weaning itself off of Russian energy dominance quite a long time ago. The building of Nord Stream 2 was very much this is a the doubling multi, down. This is the, no, excuse me, Maria. This is the pipeline that runs 760 miles under the Baltic from a point in Russia to a point in Germany. And it's exclusively for the German market, if it was. If it's ever actually. Yes, it's, it's a 55 billion cubic meter capacity pipeline. It's important, however, because because Nord Stream 2 has been sanctioned as part of the international response, well, particularly the German response, but let's call it the international response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is important to point out the difference between transit capacity and natural gas. So the building of Nord Stream 2 did not actually and would not necessarily have provided Germany any more natural gas. It would have remained dependent on whether Russia felt like sending it. And Russia has certainly shown itself to be willing to manipulate energy markets and energy supplies, both for economic reasons, but also for geopolitical reasons. So yes, Germany was doubling down on its dependency on Russian fuel sources, but it was also doubling down on its dependency on Russian goodwill. And to some degree, that is why it took Germany so long to stop Nord Stream 2. And to some degree, that's also why it's taken Germany so long to make the difficult political decisions involved in maintaining its nuclear a bit longer and weaning itself off of Russian gas. What are the energy fixes for Europe going forward, Costas? Uh, we talk about liquefied natural gas and certainly more of it will flow in, but it is a lot more expensive than gas coming out of a pipeline. What is Europe going to do it won't be competitive economically if it has got very high energy costs. Yeah, I think it will be, it will need to have um, you know in the energy basket have all forms of energy. Um, we are not. I you know I don't think we you know I I don't know how this is going to play out with uh, Ukraine, but um, you know. You, I think I mean there will be there are long-term contracts and Russia has been a long-term supplier to Europe, so it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and even regarding Nord Stream two, um, you know they just postponed. Uh, I mean they put they pulled back the certification. It hasn't been completely cancelled, so we don't know how it's going to play out, and we don't know. And it's interesting that the because it was mainly financed from European companies, they haven't. You know, claimed their money back, or you know, taken any sort of action because the project has not officially, you know, been cancelled. Um, so we have to see how geopolitically plays out. I think it's just a, what is important, and we saw that with from the what uh, 
the Surya talk about, you know, the um, the brave decision of Germany is that it's it's another wake up call for Europe, and they're going to be having the back of the head that you know, look what happened. Uh, okay, if Russia is a reliable supplier, we'll continue on this thing, but we're going to have an alternative, and we're going to be able to say that, you know. If we want completely to cut off gas from Russia, we will be able to do it because we will have other suppliers. Uh, now Europe cannot do that, and you know, uh, and this is, um, or it could, but you know, it's it's uh, it's going to be very difficult. Um, so I think that we're going to see even more diversification than we have seen before, and we're going to see, as I mentioned, with liquefied natural gas in Germany, we're going to see more uh, options of, and and that will reflect in the contracts. We're going to see that in. In terms of speeding up renewables, we've seen um, uh, I, I, today even like uh, the Energy Council, the ministers of the foreign of the uh, European Union, that they decided to you know speed up uh, all those projects. In for, so they have a lot of alternative energy sources, which is good. I mean, in, 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 for it's good for consumers and it's good for the countries as well. Where does Iran play into this? It too is sanctioned. I mean, it's subject to so the sanctions from the US, but it's a major gas producer and potentially could produce more gas. Yeah, if, if sanctions are gradually uh, lifted from and um, from Iran, you know, it could be potentially, um, a, you know, a, a major supplier, definitely, I mean, after Russia. Um, it's also, you know, could also help with the oil production as well. Uh, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, we mentioned gas, but, you know, also we've seen oil prices shoot above $100 per barrel. Um, we've seen that OPEC uh, has been not increasing production, mainly because it can't. Saudi Arabia can also, but they need high oil prices to balance their budget. So for them, unless, you know, prices shoot up so much that they have to... Um, counter inflation, they are also afraid of, a, you know, of the price collapsing, so they would not increase on their own. Um, but, but gradually, we're going to see Iran could play an important role in gas in the long term. Surya, are there other places that can pipe gas into Europe? Is there pipeline gas available to Europe anywhere but through Russia? I mean, um, <clears throat> Central Asia, the pipelines run through Russia. So that they are Russian dependent. Is there anywhere there are, else? There are par, uh, there are a few pipelines that come up, for example, through the Maghreb in, in northern Africa. One goes up through Gibraltar and Spain. There is a project under consideration called the East Med pipeline, which would run in the eastern Mediterranean and would take uh, petroleum from, well, excuse me, natural gas up from uh, Israel and uh, Syria sort of area uh, up into Europe. But at present, no, there aren't very many options. Uh, one of the things that the US government is working to do is look for those options to help bail out Europe so that it can stop being dependent on Russia for both oil and gas. And there were discussions with some of the Gulf countries, the Arabian Gulf countries, about whether they could find ways to resupply Europe throughout this. Um, I want to ask you, Surya, you lived in and have friends in Ukraine. Uh, take a little departure away from discussing energy. What are you hearing from your colleagues and friends in Ukraine? What are the human stories that you're getting uh, out from? As I'm sure you can imagine, this is really, really tough for them. Uh, my best friend is in Kyiv. 
I couldn't reach her for 48 hours during the first major bombing onslaught because she had to be in the underground parking garage of her house. She lives in Obalon, which is the neighborhood in Kyiv that took the heaviest shelling early on. A, a couple of major bombs went off in central Kyiv over the course of today, now yesterday, Kyiv time. It's shocking. It's something that most Ukrainians didn't actually think could ever happen, despite the fact that everybody sort of also thought it always would. But the difference in thinking that one day Russia would come and try to take at least half of the country and thinking that Russia is going to invade tomorrow is a very big difference. And people are running. There are theories that Russia is trying to clear out the city centers so that it can start massive bombing campaigns with lower civilian casualty levels, because on some level, Russia understands if it's going to try to hold Ukraine, the lower the, the human suffering, the easier it will be. Although that is an, another gross miscalculation about the Ukrainian people, that it doesn't matter how many they kill, they are not going to surrender. But I think one thing that's become clear in the way Russia is operating is that it never thought Europe would be able to take a stand because of its energy dependence. And so I think in order to protect the rest of the countries in Europe, one of the things that really must happen is that the underlying assumptions for this invasion really need to be challenged. They really need to be checked. And that should take the form of the strictest sanctions on the energy sector possible. That's going to be an absolute economic disaster for the rest of the world. It, it will be. It, it will be a, a political disaster in the United States with elections coming and incredibly high petrol prices. But it is simply delaying the inevitable if we do not break Russia's energy dominance now. And the Ukrainian people are, are suffering for it. Saria, so, I have asked you for a charity that viewers and listeners to this program and donate money that will help immediately or very quickly uh, people in Ukraine and refugees. And you told me it was resom4ukraine.org. Would you like to tell us what Resom is? The reason I've suggested this charity is first that it's verified. These are people who have been engaged in civil society work and humanitarian work on the ground in Ukraine already but also because being there on the ground instead of being international organizations means that they can respond most quickly to the most pressing and immediate issues that they see around them. Thank you. Well, let's go back to energy. Custis, uh, how do you see the world settling down after this? This is, a, this is an invasion that goes beyond Ukraine. It's an invasion of our sense of well-being, an invasion of our general security, and it points up the vulnerability of the interconnected world uh, if something happens in one part of that vastly interconnected uh, matrix that is the world today. I think that uh, the world uh, after um, you know the invasion of um, Ukraine is not going to be the same. I mean, we've seen this, um, uh, you know, in um, also, you know, I think always, I mean, energy, they say it was always 90% politics and 10% really energy. I mean, I think that now um, the geopolitical situation, the fact that one country 
can, you know, is trying to change the border, something, you know, we're having a war in Europe that we haven't seen since World War II. I think that it will make uh, most, uh, a lot of countries and alliances that like, rethink of the way, um, you know, of energy security, not just energy sources. Um, I hope that, you know, it's not going to be, become more like a nationalistic issue about, you know, individual policies for countries, but overall, um, you know, we can, they're going to see how the, you know, the trends and the energy structure work. And I think that definitely is going to be an acceleration of renewables. Uh, I think we have to have more renewables. And I think that uh, the whole policy of, you know, um, you know, of zero carbon emissions by 2050 has to happen because there is climate change and this should not be undermined with the latest events. Um, so, I mean, there will be an acceleration. I mean, there will be everything of, of nuclear, definitely. Uh, I always thought that nuclear has to be part of the energy basket. Uh, I mean, there is an issue of uh, nuclear waste, but there are also ways of, you know, it's a zero carbon uh, uh, energy. And it's also, you know, they're, they're you know, always developing better, um, better technology. Um, hydrogen can also be a, uh, a very important, but I think also that I, the whole, like we've seen now with Russia and, I, you know, also it's an issue with China with raw metals. I mean, we have, you know, we can have another, issue that coming down the road that way i mean we shouldn't forget about that because you know like europe and the, um, uh, i have uh talked to maro sefkovic quite often he's the vice president of the european commission and he's in charge of uh, strategic foresight but before that he was an energy commissioner and he uh looks at the his job at the energy foresight is to foresee possible uh dependencies and you know with the dependency on raw minerals and raw earth uh, with China. Syria, I'd like you to tell me what it is about the Ukrainian people that so endures them to you. So Llewellyn, that's a really important question for me. Thank you. Uh, I remember a little bit after I arrived in Ukraine calling my sister and describing some of the things I was working on. And she actually said to me, Suri, this is the first time I've ever heard you care. And which isn't to say that I was apathetic about everything I'd ever done before, but it speaks to how quickly and how deeply Ukraine grabbed my affection, my concern, and my dedication. I've been working very hard in the last couple of days to, to help. And there are a couple of things that are truly wonderful about Ukraine. And of course, there are wonderful things about every country, but Ukraine has, for me, the most fantastic culture of dedication to country. I think the world has just seen this. And I don't mean it in some kind of chauvinistic sense. I mean, you feel it in the air when you interact with people in Ukraine. You feel the spark of commitment to improving their country. They know they have massive corruption problems. They know that they have complicated histories. They know they're not perfect. They don't claim to be. But what you feel there that I've never felt anywhere else is this inspirational drive to try. And I think it's that that we're seeing on display right now militarily. It is you, you are looking at the will of the Ukrainian people. Thank you, Saria and Kostas. And I hope next time you're on the program, the tidings from Europe will be happier. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available 
as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.